This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, July 31st, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. New York has tried to adopt a kinder, gentler way of tolerating sex work. They just arrest the customers now. Caitlin Bailey runs the Old Pro Project, an advocacy group for sex workers. We talked about why New York got it half right. You and I have discussed in previous episodes of the Cato Daily Podcast various models of how sex work is uh, exists as a legal matter. And um, New York, of course, famous for its prostitutes. Multiple TV shows have been made about this. And uh, so New York has done something interesting, which is that it has decriminalized part of uh, prostitution. So what is that? What, it, what have they done? Great question. Uh, we are still trying to figure it out. But the short answer is, is that they are trying to implement what's known as end demand. So by, quote unquote, decriminalizing half the transaction, right, the provider side, uh, they are still maintain aggressive criminalization and policing of the buyer uh, demand side. So to, just to understand what this looks like in other contexts, this would be like only going after drug users. Correct. This would be like only sending men to register for the draft, which we do. Correct. So what is the problem that uh, advocates of this particular model, what problem they believe that is being solved? So the underlying assumption here is that every act of prostitution is an act of paid rape. And so policymakers here believe that by arresting and aggressively policing the demand side of prostitution, that they are saving people in the sex industry from their own clients. But, you know, anyone that's worked in any kind of sales job understands that if you make it more difficult for the client to access the service that you're providing, you have a direct impact on the livelihood of the salesperson. So, in essence, they're trying to create a future where sex work doesn't exist by making it more difficult uh, for people to to access those services. Now, in and of itself, uh, this is a problem, but the reality uh, is that this, of course, has a detrimental impact on sex workers who, of course, need money to survive, right? Uh, in addition to that, Everywhere that this policy has been implemented, violence against sex workers goes up because when you put, you know, fear of arrest into clients, right, when you tell them that we are, uh, you know, going after them, potentially humiliating them in front of their friends and family, facing jail time, steep fines, uh, it, you make clients less likely uh, to willingly participate in a provider's screening process, less likely to uh, follow the instructions of a provider who's trying to keep themselves safe. And it makes it more difficult for sex workers to figure out who is a predator posing as a client and who is a reasonable, rational person who's fearing arrest. Yeah, because you imagine that if you're engaged in, in illegal activity um, and you are engaging in, well, not exactly, quote unquote, arm's length relationship with somebody, uh, that you would be concerned about protecting your identity. Absolutely. You'd be concerned about protecting yourself from arrest. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's why you would try to conceal your identity. Uh, and that makes it harder for both sides of the transaction to engage in any kind of uh, legitimate, above-board, 
I dare say, honest yes. uh, transaction between people. And uh, this applies across a wide variety of things that you don't want the regulator in the middle of transactions threatening to arrest one or both of you. It just makes it very difficult to engage in transactions. Absolutely. And so, you know, that's true sort of on a, on a one-to-one, right, like client to provider, right, sex worker client relationship. But I think um, another detrimental element of this law is that they're attacking uh, so-called third parties, right? So these are people who are connecting uh, clients and, and providers, right? So these are people that are answering phone calls, who are doing scheduling, uh, or who are renting to sex workers. So this kind of law incentivizes landlords uh, to evict known sex workers. It incentivizes, uh, you know, people that were otherwise helping sex workers. You know, there was a terrible case of a a woman who was being paid to clean uh, an outcall location, right? She was a cleaning lady, and she was charged uh, as a trafficker because she's a third party uh, to a prostitution transaction. It's you know, so this this idea that we have, this sort of like racialized notion um, of pimps, right, which is uh, a direct result of the criminalization of sex work, right? There's no place for uh, for a pimp character in a decriminalized world. Right. Well, right. I mean, you could imagine that there you might want someone to be your scheduler. Exactly. <laughs> if you're a driver, uh, a sex worker, your driver, something like that. But essentially, by in in the in the realm of prohibition. Police, in a sense, become predators. Yes. But pimps become, I don't know, slightly less offensive predators. I mean, that's that's what allows them to exist. There are all kinds. I mean, you know, there are exploitative managers. And like, look, I've worked in entertainment long enough to know that there are there's all kinds of exploitation in all kinds of industries. Right. But you have good and bad managers. But when you lump in everybody that helps to connect sex workers to their clients as a you know criminalized class, then you're not making a distinction between somebody who is providing a legitimate service that the sex worker is paying for, right? Because they would rather somebody else, you know, schedule, do the the background checks, the thousand and one things that come with any sales job, really. Um, you know, when you lump them all together, you create no opportunities for sex workers to report legitimately violent, right? Legitimately uh, exploitative people. Right, because if it's all illegal, right, um, reporting uh, one person can give you a terrible reputation, and a whole lot of people are just going to back away. Exactly. Whereas in a legal uh, regime, mm-hmm. the guy's the problem, right? And it's just that one guy is the it, problem. Yeah, exactly. It's not like the class of managers. It's just one bad apple, right? And so it allows workers to, you know, identify uh, people that they don't want to work with. Whereas like if the whole thing is criminalized, it's shrouded, right, in in this mystery. And it's difficult to decipher, you know, who's safe and who's not, clients and managers. I know you feel comfortable speculating on this, <laughs> uh, but I will ask anyway, because I think we probably think the same way about this, which is this seems like a different way to go about uh, imposing a sort of moral law while also appearing to be sensitive to the needs of sex workers. Absolutely. And it's infuriating, right? So it, you know, blanket, it's trying to shift uh, the stigma and shame, right, away from sex workers, ostensibly, on to clients, right, which doesn't help anyone. Um, but it also ends up reinforcing this false narrative that sex work 
is human trafficking, right? That anybody that engages in this work is a victim in need of rescue, right? By the state uh, or, you know, nonprofit organization or, or somebody. And so you end up with these mandated services and John schools popping up, right? So it's this ecosystem, um, you know, where people are being paid to uh, shame and, and lecture people about something that's older than money. One thing that I think is is notable, and we we I've I think we've stressed this point before. What you advocate is decriminalization, and not legalization. Correct. Why? Legalization is a dystopian nightmare that only benefits brothel owners. When you create regulatory structures or licensing schemes, you end up preventing access to all of the benefits of decriminalization, right? So if I'm somebody who's sitting at a bar and somebody offers me, uh, you know, money in exchange for sexual services, and I say yes, and something terrible happens, right? Under a legalization model, I can't report that crime committed against me because I didn't get a license. I'm not working inside of the legal structure. So you maintain all of the harms of criminalization, but you end up creating a false monopoly on the few people that are able to afford legal licenses. Nevada is the only state in the union with legal regulated prostitution, and it has the highest arrest rate per capita for prostitution. And that's be- and I assume that's because the legal prostitution only occurs on specific geographic yes. areas, pieces of property. Yes, uh, maybe licensed to licensed in brothels, this. right? And so, in order to be able to afford, you know, not only do you need uh, a lot of money to afford the limited number of licenses that they're they're willing to give out, you also have to have the political connections uh, to to secure those licenses, right? So that helps the small handful of people who are able to do that. It disempowers workers, and it's not a good experience for clients. In order to work as a legal prostitute in Nevada, you have to register as such with the local sheriff's department. That becomes subpoenable about you. It's a, a subpoenable fact about you for the rest of your life. So you can imagine how this plays out in child custody battles, for example. Um, you have to be hired by a brothel, uh, which is its own, you know, sort of rigmarole, the limited number of spaces. And then you have to follow a truly bizarre, Byzantine, a number of state, county, city, and brothel rules, right? So it's all, it's everything that's terrible about working as a waitress with the, you know, sort of added stigma and shame of sex work. Uh, So the overwhelming majority of paid sex in Nevada happens outside of those brothels. There's no way to work legally in Nevada or Reno where the highest demand is. Um, And you've incentivized police officers to sort of really crack down on, you know, sex work that happens outside of those brothels because the brothels don't want to compete with the black market. Where does this work? The best example of this is New Zealand, which fully decriminalized sex work in 2003. So that means that individuals engaging in acts of paid sex aren't breaking any laws, which frees them to report violence committed against them. It frees them to be open and honest with their healthcare provider. But If you are somebody who is working with more than, you know, two or three other people, you have to register for a business license and follow all of the laws of any other employer in New Zealand. They don't allow advertising in public spaces, but they do allow websites where, you know, clients and providers can connect on their own. So, you know, communities, neighborhoods have ordinances that prevent 
you know, public sex, nudity. And of course, we already have laws against violence and exploitation. But because no individual engaging in a one-off act of sex work is committing any crimes, they have access to all of the public services, uh, you know, including police officers that, you know, any other citizen would have. One of my favorite stories out of New Zealand is that there was a young woman uh, engaging in prostitution and a client refused to pay her. So she called the cops and the police officers gave that client a very simple choice. Pay this young lady for her services or face arrest yourself. Caitlin Bailey runs the old pro project we spoke last week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.